there are, there are certain phrases that are not in the Bible and are not true. But we think they're in the Bible, but they're not and they're not true. Like this one, God helps those who help themselves. First Opinions, chapter 3, verse 16. <laughs> Money is the root of all evil. No, it's not in the Bible. It, in the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. All right? And this is another one people think is in the Bible that's not. This too shall pass. Are you talking gas? Are you talking an upset stomach? I, I don't know. But there are certain words that are not in the Bible, but the teaching of what that word means is accurate, is true. Like Jonah was swallowed by a what? Big fish. Whale is not in the Bible. You can you know, play trivia with people later on, all right? How many wise men vi visited Jesus at the manger? Zero. The wise men did visit Jesus, but he was about two years old. wasn't in the manger. That would be kind of weird. And we don't know how many. So sorry, I ruined your Christmas singing three, We Three Kings of Orient R, okay? The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity. But the teaching of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three being one, is scriptural truth. And then there's another word we're going to talk about today is the word rapture. The word, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. See, when the, Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek, but then when Jerome translated it to Latin, he used a phrase in Latin is where we get the English word rapture. But the teaching is there, but that word is not. That's what we're going to talk about today. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you are joining us uh, new in the room or online. If you're brand new, we're near the end of this series called Preparing for Christ's Return. And uh, with a little book that talks, talks about all sorts of things. And today, I'm going to talk about the evidence, what I believe is the evidence for a pre-trib rapture. Now, I understand not everybody knows what I'm talking about, so I'm going to do my best to make it clear. Do my best to make it clear. There is, in Scripture, very clear, a seven-year tribulation. We've got this little chart here. Okay, a seven-year period where it's really the wrath of God coming down. I mean, we've, we, man, how many centuries of people prayed, God, would you take care of evil once and for all? And there is a seven-year period where there's the, the wrath of God. It's called the tribulation. Halfway through that, it changes to the great tribulation. But it's a seven-year period. And I'm going to talk about a pre, means prior to that tribulation, there's going to be a rapture. Uh, some people believe in a mid-trib or a post-trib um, you know, rapture. And I made a joke last, year, uh, last week at second service that uh, there, there's people who believe in those things and they have the right to be wrong, okay? Um, that, that's his joke. I have good friends who have different perspectives of, of this, but I'm going I'm to uh, talk you through uh, what I believe the Bible says about this. Now let's read in chapter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes this, according to the Lord's word, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you what Jesus talked about. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. We talked about that last week. Those who have died. Verse 16. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, after what? The shout, the call of the archangel, and the trumpet sound. After those things uh, happen, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He wanted them to be encouraged because the church there in Thessalonica thought that they had missed it. They had missed the return of Christ. And he said, no, 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 let me explain what it is. Now, where we get the word rapture in the English is in verse 17. It says, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That phrase there in the Latin is where the word rapture comes from. Caught up, snatched away, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now what I'm going to do today, this is, uh, there's preaching and there's teaching. I got my teacher hat on uh, this week and next week to wrap up the series. But I, I usually have a central point. And we don't have a central point today. Some of you are just going to mess you up, all you note takers. But I have plenty of things for you to fill in the notes for your, for your issues. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you some, four evidences of a pre-trib rapture. The first evidence, I believe, is the most important. Number one evidence is scriptural proof. Who cares what Barry says? Who cares what somebody else writes? The most important evidence is what does scripture say? And I believe scripture is very clear about the church, the believers, will be rescued from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God. And that's what I believe the tribulation is. God finally, his enough button has been pushed and everything's ready. And he's like, I'm ready to bring, you know, the wrath of God on the earth has not fully experienced this since the flood of Noah, and it's going to come. And before that, I believe scripture, very clear, I'll show you, rescues, takes away the believers from the wrath of God. Here's, there's a number of them, I'm going to only give you four verses. Here's the first one from Romans. Romans chapter 5 says this, since we have now been justified, you trust in Jesus, you're now being justified, all right, the blood of Christ Pays for your sin. It's just as if you've never sinned. Justified. Just as if you never sinned. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? When we are saved, the blood of Jesus Christ covers us completely. God doesn't leave a little portion of our sin that he didn't forgive. It's like, I forgive most of it, but I still got issues with you in this area. He cover, the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin. How much more shall, be, shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Jesus? Not through church, but through Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We started this. I hinted at this in part one of the series. He says, about, talking about to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us. From the coming wrath. From the coming wrath. Salvation is God rescues us from God's judgment. We all deserve hell. 
He's not talking about that. He's talking about the coming wrath because of Jesus. He rescues us from it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 hinted at this in part 3. It says, for God, and I think this is so clear, for God did not appoint us, believers, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint us to wrath. Peter says something pretty interesting. Um, sorry, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. And you, you and I experience lawlessness all over the place. I mean, if anybody can get away with things, they're doing it today. It's everywhere. We're all being touched by it. He says, but the one who now holds it back, in, in, like crazy lawlessness, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the Antichrist. Picture this, a dam holding back all evil and all lawlessness. And that there is one who is holding it back. And it's leaking out and it's like the dike is starting to show, you know, holes. And, and, but the Holy Spirit's holding it back. But then when he is taken out of the way, it's like the dam breaks. And evil and lawlessness have their day and it just goes crazy. And then, then at this point when he's taken out of the way, the lawless one, he's talking about the Antichrist, will be revealed. Will be revealed. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit, when he is taken out, is that, that's because the rapture, in, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells believers at salvation. The Holy Spirit, it's kind of hard for us to understand this, but he indwells believers. When we say yes to Jesus, that you're my Savior, you are the Christ, uh, you rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. He, he convicts us of sin. He uh, kind of uh, lightens, like, Scripture, illuminates Scripture. Oh, that's what God's saying and the Holy Spirit does all sorts of things inside the believer. Jesus promised this. But when the believers leave, he leaves too. And all hell breaks loose. Some of you are all excited about our fall series in the book of Revelation. You're like, oh, I'm so excited for it. I am not. It is depressing. But when I start thinking about what I'm going to teach today, I'm like, okay, I can teach it because of the hope what Scripture teaches. That I won't be here. But if you do not know Jesus, you do not want to go through the tribulation. You do not want to go through that. Scriptural proof. Uh, Dr. David Reagan, he's written some end, uh, like some end times books about Bible prophecy. He said this. He says, furthermore, it makes no sense to say that Jesus is going to beat up his bride for seven years during the tribulation before coming to fetch her for the wedding. What kind of bridegroom would do such a thing? What bride would look forward to lovingly being united to such a bridegroom? And that's why I've, I've had a position for, for decades now that, that God did not appoint his bride, his church, uh, to, to experience the wrath of God. And I'm going, why would Jesus drag his bride through a bloody, horrible time of pain and turmoil and then go, oh yeah, then let's get married? 
the, the marriage that takes place in heaven. Because I believe that, that scripture teaches that his bride will be rescued from the wrath of God. Second evidence is this. There's symbolic pictures through scripture. That's where we find that God gives clues. Symbolic pictures where God gives clues. God is a storyteller. The Bible is a picture storytelling book. It's pictures all through scripture. When when God had a worldwide, you know, his wrath covered the world. It's called the flood. And what picture did God show us with Noah? Peter writes about Noah. That God, he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. Genesis says, you know, the world was crazy. It was out of control. Evil was giving birth to more evil. And then it says this, but, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. No accident that's called grace. New Testament Teaching is we are saved by grace. We are rescued by grace. There's a picture of, of, of Noah being rescued as God brought his wrath to the whole world. Then another smaller example of, of Lot, Peter writes about this. He, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. A little picture foreshadowing, but it says that he rescued Lot, the right, a righteous man. That God sent fire, and hail, and brimstone to Sodom and Gomorrah, thriving cities near what we now refer to as the Dead Sea. I don't think it was dead then. God's, you know, d- destroyed those cities as, as a picture of a foreshadowing of his wrath to come. But before that happened, he rescued Lot out from that city. Symbolic pictures. The other little clue that, that, that God gives, actually Jesus gave, he's, he was referring to a Jewish wedding analogy. Jewish wedding, and like the ancient Jewish wedding, they did all sorts of things. Is that when they, uh, you know, the, when the groom was was before they got married, he left his bride, even though they were technically and legally married, it wasn't consummated yet. But the groom would leave his bride and would go. This, this is what they used to do: go back to his father's house and add on to the compound. All right, some of you are thinking, I'm so glad I don't live with my father. But back in that, that culture, that, that, that whole environment was, family was so huge that they would, he, the groom would leave the bride, go to his father's house and add on. And eventually they would have this compound with a courtyard in the middle. And the whole family would live, live, live together. I think we should bring that back. That means my three daughters, if you're watching, you got to move back. All right, to, to, to Silverdale. But... But, he, but when Jesus said to his disciples, he says, I'm going to leave. And they're like, what, 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 what? He, what he tells them, and I'm sure they got it because they understood the, the wedding tradition that they were living in. He said this in John 14. And my father's house has many rooms. He goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I'm pretty sure, confident, because they knew the culture, they lived it, 
that when Jesus said this, they, they had a picture in their mind, oh, like a Jewish wedding. You're going to leave and you will come back for us. But what I've also learned studying Jewish culture, you know, my love for history, is not only would the, the groom leave the bride to go build onto his father's house, but when he would come back to pick up his bride, bride didn't know when the groom's house was ready. She was just told to be prepared at, at moment's notice. That, that the groom and his crew, some of his fellows, would come and, and, and from a distance from her house, there would be a shout, like, yo, girl, I'm here. <clears throat> I'm sure it's in the Greek somewhere. And there would, they would blow trumpets. And then she would come out and meet him. And they would go to the father's house for seven days. They didn't consummate it yet. They would go to the father's house for seven days. And then the family went to the wedding ceremony. There's a brief pause before the wedding ceremony of seven days. I believe that's a picture of the, the bride being raptured out, captured out by the groom. And for seven years, things happening down here. And then Jesus comes back the second time to the earth with his bride and he sets up his kingdom. And in heaven, there's a wedding that takes place. Pictures, kind of symbolic pictures, that help us understand, and it's all through scriptures, all these clues of God's trying to teach us. And there's another one, another picture, symbolic picture, of the coming of a conquering king. Coming of a conquering king. Where the conquering king is coming back. Now, we read this morning, at the very beginning, verse 15, it says, according to the Lord's word, basically I'm going to tell you this, but I'm telling you what Jesus said. Jesus said. And I, we started this series about looking at Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians. So in Matthew 24, Jesus says this about his coming. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that word in the Greek, coming, means presence after absence. He's going to show up after being absent. He is coming back. Now, that interesting Greek word for coming, parousia, was a Greek word giving, given for an event that kings would use. And the event was the king would show up before he entered into a city that he had just conquered. He had conquered the city, but has, has yet to arrive, and the king shows up. What happened was, this was a Greek word that described the coming of the conquering king. The Caesars did this, that they would come to a city, and before the Caesar went into the city, his generals, his followers, his dignitaries would come out and meet him outside the city and then they would enter the city by, uh, all together as a conquering king. Caesars did this. Jesus did a soft version of this, a little picture, a little hint, when he came to Jerusalem and before he entered the city, 
on that Palm Sunday, people came out to him and they cut down palm branches and put them on the ground and took off some of their garments, outer garments, and put them on the ground. And Jesus riding the donkey, they all started going into the city singing prophetically, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they all went into the city. That was a soft, kind of a soft coming, soft coming. But Jesus gives pictures of his coming. There's going to be a shout. Archangel angel is going to say something. There's going to be trumpets. That's why God loves brass. That's why we need him in church. All right. And then we meet him together in the air. That's evidence number, number two. The third evidence, evidence is this, is logical conclusion. Logical conclusion for the rebellion in the millennium. Now, if you're new to Bible study, I may lose you here. I'm going to do my best to just talk about this in generalities, all right? That during the millennium, millennium is not a, I'm not talking about millennials, all right? I'm talking about millennium, that's a thousand years, all right? Here, here's a picture for you. A thousand years, okay? Big picture. There's a seven-year tribulation. Actually, if you're going to go to scale, it's like this big. But just so you can read it, seven years of tribulation, I believe that the, 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 the Christians are raptured out we gather together in the air with Jesus, hang out at the Father's house only to return with Jesus as the conquering king uh, after the tribulation. And after the tribulation begins the thousand-year reign of Christ. For all these, you know, thousands of years, human beings have set up their kingdoms and destroyed other kingdoms and ruled the world and ruled their land and every single human king, emperor, Caesar, uh, you know, human beings have made an absolute dis disaster out of leading people. It's always an accumulation of power and to subject their, you know, their people so that they can have power and they have no freedom. When Jesus comes for a thousand years, it's almost like Jesus says, okay, you guys have done, have done it completely wrong because you're humans and you have sin. Now I'm going to set up my kingdom. And this is the kingdom that we sing about at, East, uh, at Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord has come, peace on earth. That's not, a, that's not the first coming. That's actually after the second coming, the millennial king. This is all through Isaiah. The thousand-year reign of Christ is when, when the lion is going to lay down next to the lamb. And the lion is not going to eat the lamb. Fluffy gets to live. That's when they're going to take all the weapons of war and destroy them because there's no need for war anymore. That is all talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Now, there are some believers who believe, and I, this blows my mind, believes that the church today is in the millennium. And I've talked conversation with my wife and so, some of the people that she follows, are, they love Jesus and they, they teach the Bible, but in this area, they believe that we're in the millennium. And I said, well, that's... A, that's the case. Jesus sucks as a king because I mean, this, this is horrible. I don't believe that we're even close to, to that. But when he comes, he's going to set it up and there will be absolutely joy to the world. The Lord has come and there will be peace. But during the millennium, at the very end, humans revolt and rebel against the Lord. It's like shaking their fist at God. Because during the thousand years, Satan is 
his in bondage and chain. He's, God chains him. He doesn't have access like he has access to the world today to, to mess with people and lie to people and deceive people. He is chained away for a thousand years. But at the very end, the very, very end of the millennium, God releases Satan. He comes, comes to earth and the world revolts against God again. And in the end, the judgment seat of Christ, finally God judged the wicked. And that's when hell, the lake of fire starts. And heaven is really the new heavens and the new earth. Now, who revolts during the millennium? The children of the tribulation saints. The church, believers are raptured out. But there will be in the tribulation people who turn to Christ. During the, during the tribulation. And they go right into the millennial reign of Christ. They have kids. No one dies for a thousand years. And kids have kids and kids and kids. Lots of kids. It's the kids of the tribulation saints that revolt against God. Because when believers come back with Jesus, we have our new bodies. Our sinless bodies. And scripture talks about that, you know, marriage and childbirth, we're done. Now we get to rule and reign with Christ. The logical evidence is this, logical conclusion is that the kids from the tribulation saints are the ones who rebel against God. And it's another picture of no matter even in a perfect environment where sin is present, the heart of mankind is deceitful and wicked. That's why we need a savior. Even in a perfect environment. Our culture thinks if we just change the environment, make it better, then people will, will be nice and do good things. No. The heart of every man and woman and child is, is evil. So I don't know if I lost anybody there. But let me go to evidence number four is this. Is the imminent return reality. The eminent, meaning it could happen any time, reality. I'm going to talk about what is known and what is unknown. I believe that the, the rapture could happen at any moment, an imminent return of Christ. So, but what is known? What is known in Scripture is what needs to take place before Jesus comes back to the earth. Not in the air for his, for, his, for his bride, for the church. But when he comes to the earth, like the first time he came to the earth, he was a baby. Right, in a manger. The second time he comes to the earth, he's a conquering king. We know what must take place for the second coming. The book of Daniel, Jesus, Jesus told Daniel what was going to happen. He was overwhelmed, went in depression, and then Jesus said, don't, don't have to worry about it. But Daniel, Jesus tells him this, that from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be uh, 1,290 days. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happens here, the abomination that causes desolation. That is a phrase every time it talks about it involves the Antichrist, but I will not tell you what it is. You need to be here for our Revelation series. But Jesus is telling Daniel, when this happens, the sacrifices in the temple stop and something happens that God calls the abomination 
that causes desolation. He says, when those things happen, there's 1,290 days left. He's talking about the seven-year period. After the 1,290 days, that's three and a half years, then Jesus returns physically to the earth for the second time. We know this. We know this. Now, here are some things that are still to come. Here are to come. The Antichrist is revealed, I believe, is when the Holy Spirit is taken away. So don't be looking around, well, who's, who's the Antichrist? I mean, I was a member as a kid pulling, pulling out of church, and my dad was car. I think it was in fourth grade, and somebody comes up to me and, and says, I know who the Antichrist is. And my dad, my dad goes, rolls the window down, rolls the window down. And he says, really? And he goes, it's our current president, Jimmy Carter. My dad goes, really? He goes, yeah. If you take the name, all the, the alphabet letters of his name, and there's a, there's a math to it, it adds up to 666. I remember I was a fourth grader going, this guy's whacked. <laughs> all right. George Bush has been called the Antichrist. Obama's been called the Antichrist. I mean, Trump was definitely called that. If you're a believer, don't worry about who it is. But what is still to come is he will be revealed. What is still to come is the temp, Jewish temple is rebuilt. It was destroyed in 70 AD. There is no temple there now. There is, a, there is a Muslim mosque that is the epicenter of all kinds of craziness around the world right there in Jerusalem. So the temple has to be rebuilt. When, in two, 2012, when my wife and I went to Israel, with my pastor, who's like a theologian, He's, he was smart, he left the astronaut. He was on a path to be an astronaut in the 60s and God saved him and he became a pastor. He's brilliant. We're walking into the new, I mean, to the old city, Jerusalem. And I'm like, wow, man, the temple, you know, the mount and all the conflict there. And, and he goes, you know, he goes, there's, the, 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 the temple is not that complicated to build. build. Pretty, pretty pretty straightforward. He says, all the, all the materials for the new temple are already here and in storage. And in a moment's notice, when that place is cleared, it won't take that long to rebuild the temple. And I'm walking in the old city going, oh. And he talked about there has to be red heifer uh, for the animal sacrifices. And he said, and they're already breeding red heifers today. So that still has to happen. We know this. Then there's a signed peace treaty. Israel has no friends. They have some now. America's one of their highest, you know, most important friends. But at that time, at this time, they'll have no friends. There'll be a massive peace treaty signed. And after they sign it, uh, there's an attack from Russia and their allies. And Gog and Magog, Ezekiel talks about those little ancient cities that is now in modern-day Russia. They attack from the north. From, from the east comes uh, probably China and probably Iran. Israel is surrounded. And when it looks completely hopeless, boom, Jesus returns to earth for the second time. We know these things must happen. But what we don't know is the time of the rapture. That's un unknown, which the rapture triggers the tribulation. So I'm going to read in Matthew Jesus' words. It's on the lower thirds. What did Jesus say about his coming? And I believe it's the coming in the air. 
Verse 36 says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming. That's that Greek word for the coming conquering king. This will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. How will the world respond to a billion or a billion and a half, two billion people gone? How will the world respond to that? Some of the best, coolest movies get ideas from the Bible. Heard of Armageddon, Apocalypse Now. Those are Bible terms. If you watched the Avengers, Infinity Wars, you saw this scene that changed the globe. Watch. What is it? Multiple bogeys over Wakanda. Same energy signature as New York? But ten times bigger. Tell Klein, we'll meet him at... Nick, Nick! They okay? There's no one here. Call control. Code red. Nick. Nope. the world react when a billion or two billion people are gone? If you watch the Finney Wars, uh, there was panic and confusion on a global scale. Economic collapse. In that movie, there were, were the wall of the vanished all over the world, all the people who vanished. There was, you know, trying to explain what happened. How will the world respond? I believe that our world will try to come up with a response because the world is in complete chaos and economic ruin. Here's an idea, I don't know if it's accurate or not, of how some will explain the disappearance of so many people. Have you noticed a rise in UFO conversations? Satan is is a liar, and he's he's already working on his reasoning to fool people of why people are gone. Second question is this, is where will the tribulation saints come from? 
I believe, is from people who do not know Jesus here. And they hear messages like this. And then people are gone. And they realize, I thought that was whacked crazy talk. It's true. And they look for themselves in scripture and they go back on the internet and they find and they hear stuff and they go, I missed it. And they won't believe the lie because they'll know the truth. Conclusion as we wrap up today. Believers, if you're a believer, talked about this a few weeks ago. How will you be at the imminent return of Christ? Jesus is going to be embarrassed when he, when, he, when, he, when he takes you? Like, oh, man, I just saw what you were doing. Seriously? We talked about this. Live for Jesus today as if you see Jesus tomorrow. That's, that's how, how he was talking about. Peter was talking about how we live before Christ comes back. Take it seriously. Live for Jesus today as if you will see Jesus tomorrow. If you're not a believer and you probably think what I'm just talking about is crazy and I probably need meds for what I've just taught. I'm going to challenge you to trust in Jesus Christ today as your Savior. That he came the first time to pay for your sins on a cross. And he rose again proving that he was God and he's the only hope that you have. Jesus even said this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? You got everything but lose your soul. If you're an unbeliever in this room or watching online and the rapture takes Christians away, the dam of evil and lawlessness, has, you know, the protection has been removed, you will experience hell on earth times a thousand if you don't trust in Christ before he takes his bride away. Trust Jesus today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you said all through Matthew 24 and all through the Bible, really, that you're coming back and give us clues and you, all the stuff we talked about and preserving and rescuing your bride away from the wrath of God. Lord, I pray that as believers we would begin to live for you today as if we will see you tomorrow. We we'll get serious with our faith. Stop messing around. Stop playing games. Stop playing church. God, I pray that if there's someone here or watching right now, they don't know you, that they would, are, are feeling drawn to you, that they would trust in you, that call out to you, Jesus, I'm a sinner. My sin has separated me from you. Please save me. I trust by faith that you died on the cross and rose again for me. I surrender and accept you as my Savior. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the truth that is spread throughout scriptures about your coming. May we be prepared. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there will be discussion questions, you probably have a lot to marinate on. Uh, we have those on the screen. Um, but also, if you're our guest today, if you're here, I see some, some guests in our visitor parking. Uh, we have a gift for you at our guest services counter. Please go there. We have a gift to give you for free. And I uh, hope that you will be here as we wrap up this series next Sunday with a checklist that Paul gives uh, to us. May God bless you. Have a wonderful, glorious day.